Hi, and welcome to FEMA's Finance Podcast. I'm your host, Asiel, and this podcast aims to support, educate, and empower women to achieve career success and financial freedom. In each episode, FEMA's Finance talks with successful women leaders, founders, and investors to inspire you in your journey to financial freedom. Check out the show notes, links, and resources on our page, FEMA'sFinance.life. Hey everyone, this is Asiel Altaeva and welcome to the Femas Finance Podcast Show. This episode is an exciting one and I want to start with a quote by Benjamin Franklin, which is, an investment in knowledge pays the best interest. Just like any investment, the time and efforts that you spend on acquiring knowledge about investing can pay off with great dividends in the long run. In this episode, you have an amazing opportunity to invest your time and effort in yourself and your financial literacy as we welcome one of the greatest investors to our show. And his name is Bogumil Baranowski. He is a founding partner of Secret Associates, a boutique investment firm that specializes in serving families and entrepreneurs on both sides of the Atlantic and Pacific regions. He is a podcast host of Talking Billions, TEDx speaker and best-selling author of three amazing books about investing, managing family fortunes, and navigating crisis. I highly recommend you not only to listen to this interview, but certainly that you read his book on crisis investing, which is a collection of his essays on managing, navigating, and building wealth. So I don't want to delay this any further. And I hope that you enjoyed this interview. And if you enjoyed this interview, please don't forget to rate and subscribe. And thank you so much for listening. Hi, Bogumil. Thank you so much for joining us today. Well, thank you so much for having me. It's a real pleasure and honor to be here with you today. So I'm looking forward to this conversation. So now before we start, can you please tell us a bit about your personal background and how you first became interested in the finance and investment fields? It's a great question. I I was born in Poland. In 1980, it was a very different time in Poland. Poland was uh, still a country without a free market economy. And uh, growing up the first decade was living under some economic experiment that I didn't really comprehend until years later and getting degrees in economics, really understand what happened. And then when I was 10, Poland opened up, the borders opened up and the investments came in, supermarkets opened. And then the stock exchange reopened after a half a century, almost pause between World War II and communist time. So I was witnessing a massive change in the country. And I think it inspired some ideas and curiosity about how the world works. So I went to school in in Poland, in Warsaw, Warsaw School of Economics, and I started to study economics and making sense of what was happening in the country as a kid. And I was always curious about history, people, and numbers, but I couldn't really find the right path for myself. I wasn't really sure how I can use those curiosities in one place. And As an exchange student in Brussels, I picked up a book, One Up on Wall Street by Peter Lynch, which I highly recommend because it's a relatively short book, One Up on Wall Street, but it's very accessible. And Peter Lynch was a very successful investment manager back in the 80s and and 90s. And the book is written in a way that resonates with pretty much anybody, not necessarily a professional. But the one big thing in the book that really struck a chord with me is that when you buy stocks, you buy small pieces of businesses. And it was an idea that sounds really simple, but nobody at school at my universities would tell me that. We would look at the stock market as a casino, a place where you go and gamble, you may get lucky and and win some, and you may get less lucky and just all of it. 
but to think of stocks as small pieces of businesses, it really opened my eyes to a whole new world. And Peter Lynch explains how you are already familiar with a lot of businesses in your life because you know their products and services and you can look them up. All that information is public and you can go online and learn more about the companies behind the products that you appreciate. And maybe if it makes sense, and we'll talk more about it probably in a minute, maybe you could actually buy their shares and become an owner of businesses. And that really opened my eyes to a whole new world. So when I think of investing, to me, there's only that many ideas that really make sense. So if you become an owner of businesses, you want to pay a certain price. So you're paying a price, you're getting the value. So value investing is just the idea of getting a good deal on the purchases that you make. And it's the same mindset that you would have or I had going with my grandma and shopping for groceries that you want to get the best quality but pay the lowest price, right? So you're not really chasing the cheapest of the cheapest, but you're looking at the quality. And you you find the quality in a grocery store and you find a quality in the businesses. And you can find there are certain metrics, there are certain books you can look up to, f to figure out your way of evaluating companies and finding the, the quality ones. Now, speaking about the value investing, can you please share what are the key principles of value investing and how exactly they differ from other investment strategies such as growth investing and momentum investing? The number one thing is you, you become an owner of a business and you want to make that purchase at the most attractive price for you. And that price will be the most attractive when people are fearful. So Warren Buffett, one of the legendary investors, has the saying of be fearful when others are greedy and be greedy when others are fearful. So there are moments when those quality businesses that everybody recognizes, that everybody knows, they become cheaper. And these are the times when people panic, people are afraid, and they could be concerned about this specific company or they could be concerned about the whole economy of a, of a particular country, or they could be concerned about the whole world. Like we saw during the global COVID pandemic, everybody was just very fearful and the prices collapsed. So if you're a patient and disciplined buyer in those times, you can get something that's usually much more expensive at a lower price. So it's an extreme, COVID was an extreme, but there are moments when companies have little hiccups that happen, a new product launch that was delayed, a management change that the shareholders are not happy with. They entered a new market, it wasn't successful. And the stock market, the way it works, it's a crowd of people that are trying to vote and decide what the proper price is. And they can overreact. And the market tends to overreact on the upside, gets too enthusiastic, and on the downside and panics too much. In moments of those panics around even one individual stock, you have an opportunity to buy. So that's, that's value investing in an essence. So it's the idea of buying something for less than it's worth. And there are certain valuations and metrics and more technical side to it that, that you can you know, develop and become really proficient with. Now, growth as a concept is just buying stocks that have businesses that are growing. There's nothing wrong with it. And you can actually combine elements of growth investing with value investing. So you're focusing more on companies that have a growth potential. Actually, Warren Buffett himself made most of his money in businesses that grew over time. So he bought them as a value investor. And, and sometimes I say that I'm a value buyer, but a growth holder. So I want to buy a company at a discount to what I believe it's worth, but then I'm willing to wait. And in a way I see the growth investors join me down the road when the stock is performing very well, but I want to be there before the growth investor joints. I think that's that's the best way to explain it. Now, momentum is focused more on the price itself. So some investors that consider themselves momentum, they don't even look at the fundamentals. They don't even look at the revenue or earnings or the actual business. 
they could even go as far as just looking at the price. If the price is going up, that that's when they will buy. But the idea is that you could even forget what you're buying. You could be buying not necessarily a good business or not even a real asset. It's just that the price is going up. So it's a very different mindset, right? The value investor that we were talking about, you become an owner of a business with momentum. You're just chasing a rising price. Different worlds, different goals, different perspectives. I just like to belong to that, <laughs> that value investing part of the world. It, it resonates with my personality and, and with the clients that we have. Awesome. Thank you for breaking down and explaining different types of investment strategies. From your decades of experience, what do you believe are the key traits and habits that every successful investor should possess? Well, it starts with, with patience and discipline. I think you can't really start investing without some patience and discipline because people that join the market and want to see quick gains, it's, it's a certain subsegment, but it's, it's not value investing, right? So if you're willing to wait and see a change in the business, think of planting a tree, right? If you plant a tree, and you come back the next day, you would be really disappointed because there's probably no difference. And then you come a week later, there's probably nothing yet. And then eventually there's a tiny seedling and so on and so on. Well, when you're buying a business, it's it's just like a tree. It takes time to change and grow and expand. So if, if you bought Coca-Cola and you came the next day, it's the same Coca-Cola. But if you come five years later, or if you had the time to, to wait the five years, the same company could be in two more markets or in five more markets. It could have launched a new product line. It could have found a way to do something in a more efficient way. So you, you get to see that change the same way you would see the change in a tree. You know, it's an inch tall, but then it's a foot tall and it's 10 feet tall and so on. So I think the patience is the essential part. I think what people realize is that there is a technical side to investing. Obviously, you need to understand certain metrics and be able to read a balance sheet and things that I imagine that you study at school as well right now. But also there's a behavioral part to it. And I touched on it when I talked about the fear and greed. So you will realize that when you participate in the market, when you are a buyer of, of stocks, the rest of the crowd might do things differently than, than you are. They may panic, they may get very enthused. So having a discipline in the sense of having the right behavioral mindset here will really help you. And it's easier said than done because if everybody around you panics, you will probably feel their emotions too. You know, there's, there's something really powerful about the crowd running one way and you deciding to go the other way. Now, the crowd is not always wrong, right? If it's, if it's raining outside and everybody takes an umbrella, you don't want to be the one that says, no, it's not raining and be in denial of the rain, right? So that there is a bit of an art to it where you decide the crowd is right and it is a raining day and I'm going to take an umbrella. And then there are other days when the crowd panics and thinks it might rain, but it doesn't. And you're the one that you know, benefits from the sunshine and goes outside. So you have to figure out when the crowd is actually right. Saying that the crowd is always wrong can get you in trouble. So these are the building blocks. The very important part is risk aversion. So when I talk about risk, I don't mean volatility. So if you buy a stock or if you buy most investments and you have a daily price quote, the price will go up and down day to day. That's not risk, just uh, that's you know, the nature of the market. There are buyers and sellers coming every day and, and voting. Now, true risk is the loss, permanent loss of capital. You had $1,000, you went in, you bought something, and now clearly it's worth $500. Something has changed. The business is not as good as you thought, or maybe they lost a major client, and your investment is worth today 500 
not a thousand. So it's a permanent loss of 500. So to me, the risk of that kind of permanent loss is something that you should be always aware of. And I like to start with the risks before I get excited about the upside. It's You notice how a lot of talk about investment is all about the upside, how much you can make, how quickly you can make. But if you flip it on its head and you realize, okay, I'm going to put in $1,000, how much could I realistically lose if things don't go the way I expect? And if you're still comfortable with that scenario, then you can start to focus on the upside, right? And that 1000 could become 2000 and 5000 and 10000 over the long run. But that's something that really you know, shifts your mindset and focuses on what's the downside first? So risk aversion. And the, the big part of the success of long-term investors is the ability to, to compound capital over time. So you, you're growing capital over time. To be able to stay in the game for the long run, you have to endure ups and downs of the market. And you can't allow yourself to lose too much in any of the downsides. And, and I like that exercise. If you lose 50% of your money, what's, what's the required upside to get even? 100%, right? So if you lose 90% of your money, you're expecting a 10x just to go back to even. I like to look at it because I think it opens a lot of eyes that the downside is very painful and recovering just to even is, is a very hard game to play. So not losing money, staying long-term. And I don't want to repeat Buffett, but Buffett has been in the business for you know, 70, 80 years, depending how you count. And the ability to, to do something successful over the long run. And I think it's really important to go into investing, not trying to do anything quickly. It's really, if you do it the, the way that we talk about today, you and I, it's, it's a slow growth and it's a slow success. But if you compound it over the long run, it can be a very meaningful capital at the end of it all. Now let's focus on the topic of mistakes. From your 20 years of experience in the investment field, what are the common mistakes that investors make when trying to implement value investing? And what should we do in order to avoid those mistakes? It's a great question. And it's interesting because the first conversation that I had with my business partner and the time mentor and my first boss, Francois Sicard, who is one of the founders of Sicard Associates, where I work, where we work with families and manage money for them, was about the downside and mistakes. And he found it really refreshing that I was a young kid straight from school. And I wasn't asking about how do I make money investing, but I was asking about the mistakes and the downside. And at the time, Enron was a big fraud that was in the news. I don't know if you remember a big energy company. And not only shareholders lost all the money, but employees that had their retirement money and their savings invested in the stock of that company also lost money. So it was a very painful experience for a lot of people. And I was asking about mistakes because I thought that if I can figure out all the mistakes, right, it's an ambitious call, <laughs> but if I can figure out the mistakes and don't go there, I thought the upside will take care of itself. But I think the number one thing is, is impatience. Investors say, I have a long-term view, but they, they're really impatient. And I think it's very helpful to lose money on the early investments, just to see what it feels like, because you are learning your own mentality, your own response to those moments. And I think easy winnings, easy success at the beginning can really distort the idea of how investing really works. So I lost money on my, my early investments and was just practicing as a student and it was for fun. And I didn't lose much, but it opened my eyes that things will not always go the way you expect, right? So impatience, seeing those mistakes, I think that's very helpful. 
with value investing specifically, we were talking about trying to get a deal. I think the, the little trap that can happen to a lot of investors that take the idea of value investing to its limits is trying to get an absolute best deal which means the lowest price possible. And here I want to emphasize the difference between a purchase of an expensive luxury watch that sells, let's say for $5,000 and then buying a $20 watch, right? Two different purchases. Now, if the $5,000 watch, you have a motivated seller, like you have sometimes a motivated seller in the market and they want to part with this watch for $2,000, $3,000. You look at the watch, you know it's still quality, the same way you would look at the business, but you say, well, this is a very motivated seller and the market is panicking. People are really in a bad place emotionally. And as a market, as a crowd, it's not one individual, it's, it's the crowd that panics. And they offer you the same business half off. Now, at the low end of the spectrum, you might have a low quality business that's even cheaper. And it's very tempting because as a value investor, you think, well, I'll, I'll chase it all the way to the bottom. It's weak and not so attractive, but it's so, so cheap. So I find it a really you know, difficult territory. And the way I protect myself and our clients is I have a no zero policy. And let me explain what I mean by that. I avoid all potential investments and no zero policy where I could imagine at the time of purchase that my investment could go to zero. So there will be businesses that will go through their ups and downs, their cycles, they will have failed products and so on. They can go down 10, 20, 30, even 50%. But to have a business where, or an investment that you can imagine that it could be a zero, that's something that I don't want to have in the portfolio. And if you spend a little bit more time investing, you realize that there are some characteristics of businesses and situations that can go to zero. So if you have a business that has a lot of debt, if you have a business that has a questionable management, and here I don't necessarily mean fraud, but you know, heavily over-promising and under-delivering. And then if you have a secular decline, and secular decline is a very tricky place to be because it's a place where the business reached a stage where it stopped growing and it's declining. And just to give you an idea, in the US, for example, at some point, people were using paper checks. I know it's <laughs> fading memory, but people were writing checks and, and handing them to each other as a payment for rent and everything else. So there were companies that were printing those checks. As you can imagine, you could see that the checks will go away. How quickly? I don't know. But they were going away. So you had companies in the check printing business, which before was an amazing business, and you could see it's a secular decline. The secular decline is very easy to notice once it happened or once it's clearly happening. It's easier to miss because it might be just a cyclical downturn in the business and you think, oh, this is this business is going away. You can tell the difference between one, that's the behavior of the consumer has shifted so much. This is not coming back. Paper, newspaper, as such, right? Checks. And you can think of dial-up internet, a lot of things that technologically went away. You know, we quickly forget a BlackBerry was a big thing as a business. You can see that the secular decline can surprise us. Kodak was a camera business that you might know from history books that was a successful business with a major market share for a hundred years. And then suddenly digital cameras and cameras in our smartphones completely destroyed the business. So secular decline is, is something that value investors should keep an eye on. So they are not buying a business that's cheap, but will continue to get cheaper and cheaper. Yeah, that's very interesting. And it's actually related to my next question, which is about investing for beginners. The thing is there are many people that are afraid of investing. So there might be different reasons for that, but in general, what advice would you give to those individuals who want to start investing, but are not sure of where to start? 
So I would start with identifying the quality businesses that you would like to own. And there's this concept of a circle of competence. And the idea is that when you start investing, there are only that many industries and businesses that you're probably familiar with. So if you're honest with yourself and you see that, for, for example, you're more familiar with consumer companies or tech companies, within that world, you could try to identify the winners or the, the best quality businesses. So companies that have a leading market share, companies that have healthy margins, growing sales, so strong metrics, you can start with official filings of companies. So basically any company that's publicly listed available for purchase, a stock, and that company has investor relations. You can go to their website and they have annual reports, quarterly reports, presentations. They might even have transcripts from the earnings call. So there's a lot of information you can find about their financials, about the business, where they're in. And then you can start to evaluate the business. And then there are some, some websites that will do the work for you and show you their profits and the trends over time. So if you find a business that's been successful over many years, you will see that it's a shorter and shorter list. I mean, you can look at it as eliminating anything that's not making money or has no fair chance of making money in the near future. And it's already a smaller pool. Then you find companies that are leaders in their industries. That's a smaller pool. Among those, you find companies that still have growth. That's a smaller pool. And you will end up with a list of companies. I usually have a list of 100 or so companies that I'd like to invest in. And everybody will build their own, own list. And it's okay if it's 20 stocks at first. Even it's okay if it's five stocks at first that you, you respect for one reason or the other. So that's, that's the quality part. Now, the price and the time of purchase is the second thing. So you have to be patient that you have a list of companies you want to buy, but you're waiting for your your break. You're waiting for your time of opportunity. And it's interesting, and I, I highly recommend this study. If you pick those stocks, the five stocks, let's say, look at the price range that this company had in the last 12 months. I think a lot of your listeners would be surprised. I'm surprised every time that if you look at the price range, you'll see that it's a very wide price range for a lot of companies. So within the last 12 months, they might have been up 25 and down 25 or a, a wide, a wide range. Not all of them, not all the time. But if you can wait and see the moment when the price is lower and the valuations are lower, you have a better of opportunity of buying something that you already like, but getting a deal on it. I would emphasize that any purchase and any sale, and that's something that we practice at Secret Associates, is that we you can do it gradually. You don't have to buy the entire position all at once. You can buy a little bit over time. And people have all kinds of, they buy one third, one third, one third, or they buy it at whatever pace they, they feel comfortable. It gives you a second chance to get a better price because you're not doing it all at once. The timing it becomes more of a secondary consideration. So that's something that I would recommend. Make a list of companies you like, be patient about the purchase time, and then be willing to buy over time because you might get a better price, both buying and, and selling if you decide to sell eventually. So that's something that I would recommend. What I would emphasize, and if your audience can look up the TED Talk that I gave, The Great Investor in You, I mentioned that I, I highly recommend you know, people considering investing as something, a part, part of their daily pursuit or monthly pursuit or annual pursuit. So some of the money that's idle and not used to be invested. And I don't think everybody has to pick individual investments and everybody starting out 
could rely more on what's called the passive investing option, which you can buy index funds that hold entire groups of companies at the same time, whether it's 500 largest US companies, S&P 500, and then there are all kinds of local index funds around the world. But what's interesting about it is that you don't have to make a bet on an individual stock. You can make a long-term view that you want to be a participant in the success of all the businesses that are operating in your country, in your region, in the world. And those index funds, they, they're not as passive as you think. They're basically collecting the winners of a given point in time. And then within that index, there's a continuous refresh happening as businesses you know, disappear and then new businesses appear. So that's a way to start investing and learning about investing. Now, down the road, if you feel very comfortable, you can supplement that with some stocks that you like. But I don't think there's a requirement to go ahead and build an entire portfolio on your own. And it's always okay to ask for help. And, and then, you know, there are advisors that can help and guide anybody in the process. So just find the spot that you feel comfortable with. But I think benefiting from the success of businesses that are around us, it's a fun thing to see. And then it's obviously you know, beneficial in the long run, especially if you're patient enough to see, see it grow. As an investor, I've heard a lot that reading is an important part of the process and that greatest investors like Warren Buffett and Charlie Munger are known for their extensive reading habits. And recently, I've also read your book about crisis investing, where you also mentioned about the value of reading. And with that in mind, I'm curious to know, how much time do you typically spend on reading and what kinds of materials do you usually read and how do you use them to educate yourself about investments and investment decisions that you make? So I read a lot and I like to listen as well. You know, podcasts have been an interesting development of the last few years, but it's not just podcasts. You can look up uh, transcripts of companies that report earnings. And sometimes when I hear how people present what's happening with their business, what you hear in their voice can tell you so much more. There's something unique about being able to, to hear people speak. So when I do my research, I obviously look up the annual reports, the quarterly reports, the presentations. I'm curious how the company talks about their business. And, and within you know, a short period of time, since I have been doing it for a while, I have a good feel for the people that are running the business. And then if I want to look closer, I look, look up the recordings of their earnings and I want to hear the voice. And sometimes I look up the recordings from the times when the things were difficult because I feel like you can learn a lot from the management and their style in a difficult time. And businesses will go for difficult times, but the way the management presents it and explains to you can make a big difference. And I would rather have people under-promise and over-deliver than, than the opposite, because I feel like I want to be a long-term participant in the business. I want somebody in charge that will be managing this business for the long run. So I, I read a lot. In terms of books, anything about Buffett, Peter Lynch, Phil Fisher, and if you want to look up a list, actually at the end of my books, I usually include a, a list of books that I read. And my book, Money, Life, Family, that came out a few years ago has a list and Outsmarting the Crowd that came out before. You mentioned crisis investing that you got an early copy of. <laughs> That's a collection of essays that I wrote during the COVID pandemic because it was an interesting time. And in March of 2020, I had a lot of clients call just to hear my voice. And I felt compelled to start writing not once a month, but every week. So for a year and a half, I was writing every week, giving people an, an update of where we are, where we think we are, what we're doing about it. And, and I like those moments when clients would call and say, I just wanted to hear your voice. I know you're probably buying and you're, I know you're probably 
making a difference in the portfolio. So it was nice to hear. I don't know any investors that are not readers. It, it takes a lot to accumulate the knowledge and, and look things up and, and read. So if you love reading, this is a great place to be. And I think having some curiosity and passion for history, because history rhymes, right? So it's not that the crises of the past will be exactly the same in the future, but the history rhymes. We already had higher inflation back in the day. We had all kinds of hiccups in the economy before. So if you can go back, and I personally like to look at the Great Depression, not just in the US, but in Europe and, and books about that time. And then the, the 70s were a difficult time with high inflation, oil prices spiking, a lot of things that we're seeing these days. So when I have moments when I have questions about today and about the future, I pick up a history book. So when COVID started, I actually looked up books about the previous pandemics, the ones that were recorded. And it was really interesting to see how the history can teach you a lot about the future. I mean, little thing that I picked up that became a big thing is that each pandemic of the past came in waves. There were waves of the pandemic. It wasn't just one peak. And the way I was learning about COVID at the time was that it will be a one you know, single spike and then we can move on. And I thought, well, the books are telling me that there will be waves of it. And they will be surprising waves at different times, at different points in time, in different parts of the world. There will be not all in sync. And that's exactly what happened with COVID. We had multiple waves and the timing of the, the each wave was very different in each part of the world. So you can actually find a lot of knowledge about the future in the past. So I, I highly recommend reading. But anybody starting out, One Up on Wall Street by Peter Lynch, um, any book about Warren Buffett, Warren Buffett Way by Robert Hackstrom is an amazing book, Warren Buffett Way. It, it's a short book, but explains how to analyze a business, how Buffett has done it. And I think you know, Buffett became one of the richest people in the world, but what he has really done is he documented his process. He explained what he did, and he has done it over more decades than any other investor that I know of. So I think that's a bigger gift to the society and to all of us to learn about investing than the fact that you know he he ranks high on any any list that the knowledge that he acquired and he was so willing to share because there was no requirement for him to, to share so much about the process. So I think that's a big gift, but I highly recommend those books. Phil Fisher, you can look him up. He wrote a book, uh, Common Stocks and Common Profits, and it's a more qualitative approach to investing. And uh, he had a mindset of finding quality businesses and holding them uh, forever. It's an older book, but it's very relevant today for anybody that's curious to, to learn about investing. I think what I would emphasize is that anybody joining the investment world at any point in time, these will be different stocks that people invested in 30, 40, 50 years ago, but the principles are the same. I think that's key to remember. So even if you pick up a book from the 60s or the 70s, you'll notice that you take the names of the companies away, you replace them with the stocks that we are talking about today, but the story is the same. And, and Ben Graham said, Ben Graham is, was the mentor to Warren Buffett. He said he's been doing it for you know, 40, 50 years, and he said everything around me changed. And we're talking about you know, radio, television, the technology that now we take for granted. But he said the human nature has not changed. And I think that's important to remember. Great. Now let's talk about your company, Sickart Associates. Uh, so can you tell us more about your company and its investment philosophy and how does your firm approach investing differently from other investment advisors and investment companies? That's a great question. So as a firm, we're six years old, but we have worked together as a team for 
two decades. And the clients that we have have been with the senior partners since 1969. So it's, it's been a long while. So we have a lot of continuity, longevity in terms of client relationships, which allows us to take a long-term view when it comes to investing. I think that the key secret to investing as, as a business is to have the right clients for the right investment strategy. Uh, this style that we have, which is long-term patient, discipline, risk-averse, owning businesses and waiting for them to prosper over the long run, that's something that serves well the families that we work with. And the legacy businesses, uh, families that have had their fortunes for sometimes even 200 years, and then the newer clients that we we bring in, they aspire for their fortunes to, to last over generations and serve their kids and grandkids. And the newer wealth was created through all kinds of liquidity events, either, you know, either a sale of a business or work, successful work at a big tech company. And in some cases, it's, it's a more recent inheritance when somebody wants us to help and take care of the money for the long run. The big difference in what we do is that we say we're long-term and disciplined, and we, we really are. We, we take the long-term view. We are not affected by the fear and greed that's happening around us. And then we can continue to stay the course and invest the way that works for us. And we invest our own money along with the clients. Now, I think of the world of investing as the buyers and sellers and buyers of businesses that as we started the conversation with you know, buying small stakes in businesses, small pieces of businesses, a lot of the investment world is driven by, by sales. There are products that are being created, they're marketed, and the seller of the product is not really that involved down the road in the product itself. And the difference with us is that we see the long-term success of all the purchases on the buying side of what we do. And we're not really in the business of you know, selling anything. If anything, we, we're on the side of the client and buying with them the businesses that we believe in. And if the businesses do well, we do well and the clients do well. The more we continue to do what we do, the more different we become because the world has become even more short-term focused. It's not, nothing new, but I think it's even more pronounced today that people want to get rich quickly. And with technology, there's on one hand, this illusion that things can happen very quickly, right? We have the same day delivery. We can look up things on the phone that before would take a trip to the library to find a book, to find a reference and so on. And now everything is at your fingertips. So the way I look at it, and I think you can reconcile the two very easily is that I can look up a lot of information about a lot of businesses very quickly, and I can learn about a lot fairly quickly. And I can find experts and authors that I admire also very quickly with the help of the internet. But then once I make a decision, I can give myself all the time I need for that investment to work. You know, trees don't grow faster because we have iPhones. Right and and businesses they do have uh, the potential to to scale faster, but it still takes time for them to grow. Even tech companies take years to turn around, fix, grow, expand. But for you to see the benefit of it, you have to be patient. So I think to reconcile the two and have the client base that we are very fortunate to have that thinks in that way. So we don't think we're a manager for everybody, but I think there is a certain client base that resonates with the investment style that we have. And I know that there are not many firms still out there that are doing it the way we're doing it. And that uh, you know, gives me a lot of encouragement for the future that the more the world speeds up and the more we remain on the same course, the, the more different and the more appealing we are. Perfect. So my last question for you is about female representation in the investment world. 
investment industry has historically been male-dominated. How do you think this has impacted the industry and its overall performance? And what steps can be taken in order to increase gender diversity and representation in the investing field? That's a terrific question. And you and I talked about it briefly before you hit record. I had two wonderful guests on my podcast and the episode will come out in the next few weeks. And um, they wrote a book, Undiversified, the big gender short in the investment management profession. And it's Professor Ellen Carr and Katrina Dudley. And they did a lot of research and studies that confirm what you mentioned. So they point out the issue that women are underrepresented in the investment profession. And uh, they talk about the portfolio manager level and then the analyst level and then all the supporting roles. The interesting thing is that I look at it as, as an opportunity. If you could only imagine having more women in the profession, it would mean more voices, more um, different points of view. And in the investment world, you'll notice that where we benefit is that we, when we have a variety of views, if everybody's doing the same thing, the same way and nobody speaks up and says, maybe this is the wrong way to go. This is where trouble and mistakes happen in investing. So I think this is a huge untapped opportunity for the whole profession. So as a firm, we're 50-50 we're right now, and we've had many interns over the years. And I would say that we probably had more women than men as interns and that were curious to, to stay with us for the summer and learn from us. So it's been a funny experience. And in the book and in the podcast episode with uh, the two ladies that I mentioned, they emphasize that you have to capture the talent you know, at the beginning in college and then nurture the talent through the ranks so that women not only join the companies early on, but they stay all the way through their career and you know, to the top. I think the interesting thing that I learned from them was that there's this mindset that to go to the investment profession, you already have to know so much. I like the idea that things can be taught. And I noticed that with the interns that I've had, that they come and they might have a variety of backgrounds and not necessarily be proficient with reading balance sheets, but these things can be taught. And I think the big thing about investing is that you can learn those things. Somebody can sit down with you and can teach you those things. You don't have to go to an investment profession and say, I've been investing in stocks since I was five. If that's true, that's, that's great, <laughs> but it's not a requirement. If you're intrigued, if you're curious, if you want to learn, I think there's a lot that you can enjoy about the investment profession. And you touched on something really interesting that it's a very peculiar pursuit because you're touching on so many fields. You know, from biology to history to uh, psychology, sociology, you know, human studies, all of this. And, and you know, also law and, and rules and legal profession if you get into it and compliance. So th there's a, such a wide range of things. You can never get bored in investing. That's how I look at it. And I've been doing it for, for 20 years, which to me feels like five minutes, although it flew by. I used to be the youngest kid in the room and I'm no longer the youngest person in the room. <laughs> And uh, I, I find it you know, fascinating. I remember pitching my first stock and I was 20 something and I was half the age of the second oldest person in the room. So I was shaking. <laughs> so I know how it feels, but you have to do it. You have to go in and try and then learn from everybody who has done it before. And it's such a fun pursuit because you continue to learn and new companies that get listed on the stock exchange and are available for purchase. They will be in new industries. So by definition, the process never ends and you're on top and you're you know, tapped into to what's going on in the world. 
So I think it's it's a really fun pursuit to consider, both for women and men. And I would encourage anybody and everybody to find the right internship to start, and then to realize that you can learn those things. They're not you know God given gifts. You can learn to read a balance sheet. You can learn to evaluate a business, and even the behavioral side, you can grow to appreciate, to become more patient and disciplined, and benefit from what the market can deliver. I want to emphasize that you you don't have to become the next Warren Buffett and the richest person in the world. I think you can look at investing as something that will be inspiring. It will fulfill your curiosity, and at the same time. You could grow a nice nest egg on the side, or maybe something even more meaningful. And if you're in a position where your family inherited money, or if you sold a business and you have money, you will feel more empowered to ask the right questions. Even if you reach out and ask for outside help, I think it will give you the idea of what kind of questions I have to ask to know that my money is wisely invested. So, I'm very excited for everybody that's joining the journey. Best of luck. Bogimil, thank you so much for all the wisdom and all the insights that you have shared with us. It was such a great pleasure to have you on our podcast, and I extremely appreciate the time that you spent with us today. Thank you so much. Thank you so much for listening to the Femis Finance Podcast. Be sure to subscribe to our RSS feed and all major podcasting platforms like Spotify and iTunes. And as always, if you enjoyed our podcast episode, please take a screenshot and post in your stories and tag me. Don't forget to follow, rate, and review the podcast and tell me your key takeaways.